You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Today, I'm joined by my colleagues, Steve Morrison and Jude Blanchett to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Steve, it's Monday, February 24th. We're talking in the morning. The stock market in the United States is crashing amid global economic fears. What's happening that's different today than this weekend and last week? Well, this is a really fast-moving story, obviously. And at two levels, I think things have changed fundamentally. Earlier, the hopes had been that the outbreak, which has been centered and remains overwhelmingly centered in China, we've got about 80,000 cases and 2,600 deaths now, and the vast majority are still in China, but the hope that it could be contained is fading very, very rapidly. The outbreaks that we saw in South Korea, in Iran, and in Italy just in the last few days caught people completely off guard and brought home that there's a lot more active virus out there than we realized. We still are hamstrung by the uncertainties and the unknowns surrounding this. We can talk a bit more about that. And the economic impacts are beginning to be realized across the world. And many people have come forward to note the, the disruptions that are already beginning to come into place. There was an estimate end of the week that in the global aviation travel industry, $29 billion losses this year estimated. Within China itself, $13 billion in Chinese carriers. That's just one dimension. Across multiple sectors, we're starting to see disruptions in supply chains and markets. And well before the virus has actually reached the shores of many of these countries. In the U.S., we're seeing a shift towards out of containment, towards preparing for the pandemic spread and the possibility of seeing more and more cases here in the United States. The administration, the White House, has signaled that it's going to come forward this week with an emergency supplemental request. We don't know the precise level. It's estimated at somewhere around $1 billion. That's just a start, frankly. What would that billion dollars be for? Well, look, we need to make sure that across this country at at local and state levels that hospitals and clinics uh, have the protective gear that they need, that they have adequate training, that they have adequate infection control in place. We need cash that can be put into the development of vaccines and therapies and a cure. We have no, no vaccine, no dedicated antiviral and no cure for this. The response across the board is overwhelmingly reliant on infection control and social distancing. And by social distancing, we mean people not congregating, whether it's in their churches or their schools, things get suspended. This is going to be highly disruptive to the functionality of societies and of economies. So last week, though, it seemed that China had this under control. The deaths in China were slowing down. But all of a sudden, you just said this is much more than we realized. What changed? Jude can speak to what's happening internally within China. China has continued to give a very optimistic read of where things are going. That's increasingly at odds with other accounts of what's happening within China itself. The export of cases, we always expected there would be export of cases, but we didn't realize it was going to happen with the speed that it's happening and the scope of this. Keep in mind, this is a virus that can be transmitted by people who are infected but asymptomatic. We don't know the actual true incubation period. Um, What we are seeing now is an explosion of cases. 
that are detached from their points of origin in China or elsewhere. We're seeing sustained infections happening in Korea and in Italy. Yeah, you have six deaths in Italy now. And Iran. And that is the next phase. We're in the new phase, the phase of a globalization of this. And we don't know how this spread to Italy or Iran. Well, we know that it had to have spread through some method of people migrating with the virus into those settings and spreading it to others unwittingly and undetected. And keep in mind our testing, our screening and testing capacities are very limited. And the vast majority of people who have this probably suffer mild disease or no disease so that you can have this circulating and it's in the middle of flu season. So many people are already not feeling well and they may have this and have minimal uh, effect to them personally, but they can be transmitting it to someone else who may have chronic diseases, be elderly or be more vulnerable in their immune systems. And suddenly you have these cases pop up. But beneath this, I mean, the Iranians didn't just overnight develop this epidemic. The belief is that there's a much larger population of people infected with this in Iran and, and in parts of Italy uh, and certainly in South Korea. Jude, what are you seeing in your studies of China and how China's responding to this? You're seeing the leadership in Beijing try to do two things at the same time. One is both recognize that this is still an ongoing and serious situation, especially in Hubei and the capital uh, Wuhan. But Xi Jinping is now also trying to shift to a bit of cautious optimism because they're recognizing that this is now an economic story as well as a political and a medical story. So you just had today, Beijing time, they announced that they were going to be formally postponing the planned National People's Congress meeting, which happens every year in the spring. That was originally set for March 5th. They've now postponed that to an indeterminate date. That's important, both because that's when they would be announcing the annual budget. That's when they would be releasing the, the annual government work report. This essentially sets the tempo of policy for the year. They're postponing this because they see bringing a couple thousand people together in Beijing as a, as a contagion threat. Also, the optics of having a few thousand people mingling in Beijing when you've got much of the rest of the country on lockdown would just be a political issue. And so we're watching to see when they finally do announce a date for this. That will signal when they think they've got the situation under control. I should also note, last Friday, China's supreme leader, Xi Jinping, met with the, the political bureau, the Politburo. This is their first meeting since the outbreak of, of COVID-19. And he said that they're going to still try to meet their growth targets for the year. Now, that's a really, really significant comment by Xi Jinping because we're already seeing some analysts saying that this year quarter one growth is going to be significantly impacted. Morgan Stanley came out and they said it's uh, it's going to decrease to 3.5% for Q1. That's down from 6%, correct? Right. So that means you got to have a heck of a next three quarters to be able to make up for this activity. A lot of analysts say they're, they're expecting what they call a V-shaped recovery. This is based on what we saw with SARS in 2002 to 2003. But first of all, we don't know when this is going to bottom out. And Steve was just talking about some of the, the supply chain disruptions that, that are happening in China. Um, those are still pretty significant. You're seeing some factories and, and some businesses get back to, to normal. Uh, Xi Jinping himself has said that you see a good part of the country has, has resumed to economic normalcy. I think overshadowing all of these statements from the Communist Party of China, however, is just a base level of distrust. 
both by the Chinese people, but also from outside analysts. When looking at what China says about a situation, we tend to treat it with a grain of salt. This has always been the case when we're talking about economic growth statistics, for example, but it's an entirely different matter when we're talking about an epidemic like this. Jude, may I just ask you, the Chinese put full lockdown quarantine on 100 million people and then some method of control over half the population, it was estimated. Now they're trying to restore economic functionality which may carry with it risk of reigniting infection rates or re-elevating infection rates. And, th- and we benefited externally from the quarantining and lockdown. It bought us some time to prepare, and it bought the Chinese a little bit of time. But as a long-term solution, it's just not tenable. What do you see going on now? I think they evaluate this risks both ways. You know, the, the continuing lockdown obviously was creating economic pressures and economic risks. And for the Communist Party of China, there's a economic performative element of stability there. And so I think they're basically trying to split the difference on this. So you're seeing that some areas, especially in Hubei, are remaining on more concerted lockdown. Meanwhile, some of the more well, they get economically productive areas of the country on the coastal regions, Zhejiang province, Shanghai, for example. That's where they're putting more emphasis on, on seeing people in a targeted, controlled way begin to resume economic activity. But I, I think they're fully aware that there's a tension between these two. It's just that a status quo of, of containment is not tenable for them. And so they're trying to basically... And they have to dig... I mean, in terms of dealing with the economic consequences, they have to dig really deep in order to try and finance their way out of this. I would say from an economic point of view, there's enough faith that Beijing has levers it can pull to re-stimulate, to resume economic activity. Basically, the challenge here for the CCP is work has stopped. They need to get work to resume. That's a lever they've got. Now, there are other levers they're more worried about, but in terms of just getting economic activity back up to normal. This is one of the great assets or tools that the CCP has, is they can reach down very deep into the economy and basically turn switches on. End of the week, there was spread through four prisons across three provinces, and then there were two hospital outbreaks in Beijing where those hospitals got locked down. What do you make of those? Yeah, and it's worth noting that there's also there's deep concern about the area of Xinjiang, which autonomous region, which has been under lockdown for years uh, as a result of, of what China is calling an anti-terrorism campaign, but I think most of us see as an extraordinary human rights violation. So you've got people already living in these mass detention facilities where we had very little visibility about what was going on in those six months ago, let alone now, where I think we can expect the sanitation conditions were horrendous. So to your point, Steve, about where is this in China, I don't think we've got a really good idea about just how bad it is. And now that Beijing has turned into, you know, positive message management mode, the ability to have, quote unquote, bad news come out is going to be even more difficult. We did have the scientists admitted, the WHO visiting delegation of scientists were finally admitted at the end of last week, and they actually got to Wuhan over the weekend. You know, they've held back the epidemiological data. They shared the genetic sequencing, but they held back the data, which is essential for us to understand the nature and spectrum of illness associated with this as we prepare for the possibility of this happening. So we'll have to watch for that. So presumably we're going to see much more sharing of epi data that will become important. But they've been keeping us at arm's length for some time on this. Let me ask you this, though. I think there's two key questions that Americans want to know today. One, 
Are we going to be able to fly wherever we want in the world at per usual, maybe even within our own country? Two, what are we going to do about our investments in the stock market as this affects our global economy? Well, on the flying issue, it's funny that you asked that because I got two calls yesterday from relatives of mine who are planning travel internally within the United States who were having second thoughts and converting to going by ground travel. And also, we spoke with a CEO of one of the leading American airlines about 10 days ago who said at that point, domestic air travel was already down by 10% and they were attributing that to people electing not to travel because they were anxious. So you're going to see a couple of things happen. You're going to see the spread of the virus disrupting travel and bans being imposed or the market deteriorating and private firms aren't going to fly empty planes. So I don't know if you saw this amazing New York Times piece on the disappearance of 13,000 flights. Coming in and out of China. To China, sure. which was startling graphics. Yeah. That, I think you're going to see a lot of confusion around where do I go and can I go or should I go or should I elect not to go? And you're going to see all sorts of congregations, conference, international conferences, international meetings of all descriptions, personal elected travel for recreation and vacations getting disrupted and delayed and postponed. On the economic consequences for us, I mean, I think that we've got to begin thinking much like the Chinese about how to mitigate the economic consequences because the economic consequences for us are already happening as knock-on effects. And what's our strategy for mitigating those? And that gets to, you know, Xi is as worried about his narrative to his population as President Trump is about his narrative about economic growth to a population that goes to the polls in early November. And if this is mishandled, it could have devastating impacts on the administration's standing. And of course, it's a matter of public health, but it's a matter of managing economic disruptions and dislocations. And what we've seen in China is that the small and medium scale industries are really under stress because they have such shallow pockets. They can't, they're starting to release people. And so, and that's true in the United States too. We have a vast array of employers who aren't going to be able to be dislocated for an indefinite period and keep people on their payrolls and the like. One other thing I want to say, as we prepare for the possibility of expanded spread here in the United States, hopefully we don't have a, you know, an explosive outbreak. We don't have sustained transmission, but we have to begin thinking about that. In the United States, we have reasonably good infection control. We have a stronger health system, certainly, than what you have in Wuhan. But let's not kid ourselves. We have very spare and limited capacity of beds. Two years ago, when the seasonal flu, seasonal flu in, in any given year will kill 35,000 people. Two years ago, we had a bad flu. It killed 80,000, and it overwhelmed our health system. Seasonal flu has a fatality rate of 0.1% of those infected, and usually about 19 million a year infected. If this comes in and infects 30 or 40% of Americans and has a, let's say it has a fatality rate of 1%, that's 10 times higher than seasonal flu, and it has extreme illness for 15 to 20% of the population, where are those people gonna go? There's gonna be a lot of home care. There's gonna be a lot of creation of new capacity. And how do you keep people calm? Because we're not gonna have vaccines for a year and a half to two years. We're not gonna have dedicated therapies for a while. We're not gonna have a cure for a while. We're gonna be overwhelmingly reliant on palliative care, keeping those that are in extreme illness 
sustained with oxygen and ventilators, and we're going to have to uh, get people to stay calm and listen and engage in hand washing, social distancing, and the like. And that's that's what we've got. Gentlemen, much more to talk about later this week. Thanks for being here, both of you. We'll be back later this week. Thank you. Thank you.